Welcome to the No More podcast, hosted by UK Says No More, a national campaign against domestic abuse and sexual violence. Each week, we'll be discussing a different topic around domestic abuse or sexual violence with the aim of raising awareness, educating and making a difference. Today, we're here with Imogen Butler-Cole, who is a theatre writer, performer, activist and business trainer. Her recent production, Foreign Body, is an award-winning solo show about hope, healing and forgiveness after sexual violence. Imogen sat down to chat with Head of UK Says No More, Lindsay Dearlove, about her experiences of sexual violence and how theatre was part of her healing process. You can head to foreignbodyplay.com for more information and to find upcoming showings of Imogen's Foreign Body Play. Welcome to UK Says No More's podcast, and we're here with Imogen um, Butler-Cole, whom I first met at WOW, believe it or not. Um, So I'm just going to shock you with that. I saw um, Foreign Body then, and then I took part in a discussion afterwards about the um, South of Forgiveness project, Um, and I think you were actually um, facilitating that meeting so it's great to have you here today and obviously we've been blessed to see your second you know we've seen the um, your foreign body project in the Mm. vault so I've got to see you twice thank you Um, so yeah so let me so can you tell us a little bit about you and how Mm. you came about um, starting with um, creating the foreign body Mm -hmm. so I was originally making a play about sexual violence and about the silencing of women around sexual violence. That was a theme. And it wasn't at that point about my story. It wasn't about me. It was a kind of general look at that theme. And through that process, the director and I realized that actually more effective would be to tell a real story. Mm. And it just so happened, there were no coincidences, but it just so happened that at the same time, I was in a therapeutic process and the assaults that had happened to me more than 10 years previously, I'd suddenly discovered Mm -hmm. and uncovered in that process because like many survivors, I'd buried what happened to me for more than a decade. So I was in the therapeutic process, the stories were coming out and I was simultaneously introduced to a charity called The Forgiveness Project and they look at forgiveness for all kinds of things. And I was introduced to a couple of women through that project who are both survivors, who both faced horrific um, rape and uh, abuse in their childhood, actually, and had decided to tell their story publicly. And it was the fact that they could have survived those um, abuses and be speaking many decades later, actually, but being completely strong and confident about telling those stories and that inspired me to think that if they could do that then perhaps I could also tell my story so we began to work my story in to the play and so we did a recording with me and I just talked about all the things that had happened and eventually those two women both agreed to give their recordings as well as their stories so we had all this material and I just started working physically in response to the voices so the piece is as you know the piece is a movement piece in response to the voices of my own story and now we've integrated many more survivors so there are eight other Mm -hmm. survivors telling their stories 
and also, in fact, the perpetrator of one of my assaults. And that conversation was also partly inspired by the Forgiveness Project because they also do reconciliation work in prisons where they get perpetrators of whatever kinds of crimes, it's not only sexual violence, um, to meet the people who they perpetrated against. And that was very inspiring to me because I wanted to understand what was actually going through that person's mind, why he had decided to do what he did. And also because I really wanted to check if my memory was correct. Because again, I think like a lot of survivors, I was confused, my memory wasn't clear. You know how trauma kind of covers quite often the, the real memories. So I wasn't even clear if it had happened or even if it had happened exactly as I remembered. So I approached him to speak to him about that. And I know, again, that's not something that a lot of survivors necessarily could do because of safety and because of those kinds of relationships or even would want to yeah, do. Absolutely. But I had the impression that this person might be open to that conversation and might take responsibility. And as it turned out, he did. And then he also eventually agreed to be recorded as well, telling his perspective. And that, for me, was really interesting because we very rarely hear those stories. And for me, it was important to bring the perpetrator into that conversation, to shift some of the responsibility off the shoulders of survivors, yeah. as it so often is, telling the stories, doing the healing, healing other people, running the support groups, all of that work. Championing for change. Exactly. Yeah. All of that work seems to fall on us. So I wanted yeah. to shift that onto those shoulders and say, take responsibility, tell your story, be part of the conversation. And also, if we hear the perpetrator's voice, we realize that he's just a human being too. He's not some crazy, evil monster freak that is recognizable. But these are, you know, that these are people who live among us. Yeah. They're our brothers, our friends, our partners, our families, and we have to recognize that that's who they are in order to be able to recognise so many of the assaults that happen. I mean, there's so much to pick up on what you said in your answer. I mean, I think I'll start with saying, actually, from... It's really interesting, because watching your play, I had two different experiences. The first time, there was one experience, and then the most recent one in March. And, and it wasn't as if the, your play had changed or anything. I think it was just being able to see, you know, you, you see things in different ways at different points in your life. Mm. And, and actually one of the bits that really sort of resonated with you was actually quite painful to watch. Mm. And I was very glad that it was painful to watch because mm. it's, it really does hit that moment inside of you where you're acting out the expression of despair mm. and frustration and the noise that you're hearing from the people around you who are, it's, well, when I was watching it, it looked as if you were, the, the, the experience of being disbelieved or mm -hmm. um, quiet, you know, silenced with it. Or even that moment where you've, you know, disclosed this experience to your friend and your friend said, oh, but it can't be him. He's such a nice guy. Mm. It felt as if in, there was one moment within your play where you were spinning on yourself and you've got the chair up in the air mm. that I can see that moment. And mm. I think it was a representation of how or actually how many survivors would describe their, their feelings of frustration and, and desperation for actually being heard and it's seen as for what it is. Mm. Um, and as, in particular, I think it's really interesting that your experience is, um, and you, you know, you say it throughout your play that you, what you're explaining is um, perhaps not what most people would ever have previously referred to as rape or sexual assault. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful in itself in the fact that 
we're now really, really being able to look at the whole plethora of different acts of sexual violence that women and some men experience mm-hmm. and actually acknowledging that each one of those has an impact and that impact will could continue and stay with you for a number of years afterwards. But actually, all the, those types of things um, are avoidable by men. Yeah. Um, and are, do we need to be having conversations sooner, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So I one of the really important parts of making this piece for me was that was to to kind of draw um to to illustrate the spectrum of different kinds of assaults that can happen and when i had the conversation with those two women who originally agreed to speak about their assaults i felt like they were at one end of the spectrum they were really severe and what happened to me was mild in comparison and in fact, there's this very line in the piece, one of those women who says to me, it's not about comparison. Please don't say what happened to you was mild. And I think it's really important. And one of the things that I, te- I attempt to address in the play is all different kinds of assaults. You know, there's a woman in there who was in a relationship for several years and she was constantly mm-hmm. being raped by her partner. At the time, I don't think she realized that that's what was happening for me with those assaults as well at the time I didn't realize they were assault I just you know I was at a party something happened I didn't quite like and I didn't identify it at the time because I didn't have the language and actually for me this is where one of the ways in which the media representation of sexual violence was actually helpful because I think often it can be really problematic obviously it sensationalizes, it focuses on the event rather than the impact and the healing. Yeah, absolutely. But in this one particular case, they were describing what had happened to this girl um, as digital penetration. Mm-hmm. And that has what was what happened to me. And I by hearing that and that the the fact that the perpetrators were being sent to prison made me realise that, oh, what happened to me counts you know that that matters too that it was worth addressing that it was something that I needed to look at and heal because for all those years it just felt like something that happened and it wasn't you know that the rape myth or anything incredibly violent beyond the violation of the actual act itself um and it was someone I knew and it was someone that I you know I'd fallen asleep near them so I felt like I'd put myself in that position. So, but then what the play does and you know, what then my life did was address the impact that that can have and the, and the, the way that that level of trauma can impact mm-hmm. on the body, the psyche, the emotions, trust, all of those things as well. So I, yeah, one of the attempts of the, of the piece was to look at the different kinds of trauma, the ways they can affect us and the ways that even more inverted commas kind of borderline I think I thought of it at the time can have a real impact and that's one of the things that I think has been really positive about the Me Too movement is that we're beginning to address all the different kinds of harassment assault verbal harassment street harassment as well as you know um, abuses of power as well as the more obvious quote-unquote assaults 
that exist as well. You know, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's, in a way, what we see in domestic abuse is that when we're meeting survivors or victims of abuse coming into any of our services, there is this moment where you start to talk about what domestic abuse is. And actually, that's quite freeing and powerful because then you have a name for some of the experience that you've had. I suppose what really struck me is that your experience mm. is very much very similar to the experience that I would, with no disrespect, that mm. many many young women have experienced or are still experiencing. Absolutely. And yeah. I think the one thing that sort of resonated to me throughout that was that if you had told your friends mm. that night or mm. that morning, mm. what do you think their reaction would have been? I have no idea. You know, and interestingly, one of the things that the perpetrator said was that from the very next morning, as soon as he woke up, he realized what he did to me was not consensual, it wasn't okay. And I I don't know, I think probably there are some people who might have said, oh, that's not okay. And there are some others who might just have said, oh, whatever, that just happens. You know, I think it's very individual and responses to that are very individual, given people's education, given people's exposure to these things. And that's why, you know, I do think it's very important that we talk about these things and we say that that matters, that's assault, that's not okay, that can have an impact um, so that more and more people begin to understand that, you know, if someone reports, or not even reports, just discloses, tells you that something like that has happened, um, that it is worth paying attention to and listening and seeing what they need and supporting them. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think that was what we, when we came back the next day, we sat around as a group and we were looking at actually, we asked ourselves a couple of questions that if we'd gone to our own group of friends, what Mm. the response would have been, what we would have assumed the response would have been, Mm. and would that response be any different now after, Mm. you know, the Me Too Mm. and after we were doing a lot of work with UK Says No More, actually has society, you know, you say it has changed in 10 years that we now recognise abuse differently, that we respond differently. Um, and I think what we all sort of came to a conclusion with is that actually we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that work is about listening without judgment yeah. and accepting that you, if somebody discloses to you that they've experienced sexual violence, it's not your job to prove it. Yeah. It's your job to listen, make sure that person has support that they mm. need and that you are there whatever whenever they need you or whatever Mm. it can be that you're available and I think sometimes that we so get caught up in that notion of disbelieving that we're shocked and we're surprised that this has happened and we may know this person that we sometimes don't realize that that shock and surprise actually transfers onto the person who's disclosing their experience as disbelief Mm -hmm. um, and it can silence them for longer and Mm. keep them quiet and you know get to the place where I think well actually what happened to me wasn't important Mm. and that as you say can continue for years and years and come out at a different part in your life I suppose it's really important and obviously a lot of services and support that's available um, for survivors of sexual violence Mm. if you could what would what would you like to see those services look like I think that is a really good question because I think very often um, healing services can be based on talking therapy and very often as survivors it's very difficult for us to put this stuff into words quite often we don't have words to describe it so talking therapy can sometimes be helpful but not always and possibly not enough and for me what really worked was having a combination of talking therapy and also physical therapies and one of the things that I did was um, it's a process called Grinberg therapy and it's somatic so that means that it works through the body and the mind simultaneously so um, 
you're kind of lying on a, a, a couch, a bit like a massage couch, and we'll be speaking about whatever issue you're working on, say in this instance, the trauma. And the therapist will ask you to go into a part of the body where that feels particularly present and kind of tense it up. So you're tensing up against the trauma. And then um, the, the woman who I was working with, who's a bit of a genius, she would like put a finger, for example, into that place and push into it and it would feel quite painful because I'm you know tensed up against it because I'm blocking that and then but she'd get me to think about being in that position and quite often either you know I would run with sweat or sometimes I'd be in tears sometimes I'd be shaking or like physical things will happen in response to that and then when she feels that it, you've got to the right place she would get you to just relax like really relax and somehow then it feels like that blocked trauma that's being held is then um, f flows through and away and out of the body. So for me, that was an incredibly um, important and effective process. And it was also actually one of the main things, one of the things that we started working on was about trust because she somehow recognized in my body that that was an issue for me. And there was really a huge amount of work around trust and not specifically even around sexual violence, but also around um, just being in the world and my creative process and okay. um, being able to trust myself as an artist and being able to trust that, you know, as an artist, I was going to be able to make a living and all of those things. So it's, it was on many levels, but that was a big thing. Um, and... And, I, and another thing that I mentioned in the play is about that holding, like an internal holding, which I still have in my body. And that was also, she was also really able to work on that and to work on receiving touch without um, armoring against it. Okay, that's really So there were loads of different levels uh, on which she worked. And for me, it was incredibly beneficial. So to work through the body and talking and I also did shamanic work and I did tantra like women's work um, which was about regaining pleasure and in the body and so I kind of attacked it from all these different sides and that for me was you know and I again I acknowledged that I had resources to be able to do that because you know some of these um, therapies I was having to pay for but I would you know I had the kind of work at the time which enabled me to do that and I know that that's not always the case but I would love to see well just that there would be resources there there would be budget there for healing so that people could access those kinds of therapies as well um i suppose one of the things that's been really sort of resonated with what you've said is that mm. your experience was 10 years before you spoke about it yeah and i suppose well what jumps out for me really in that is that it's never too late for you to come forward and talk about your experience absolutely and it, and what you experienced 10 it doesn't um if we can talk a bit about the fact that it doesn't... I don't want to say that it doesn't go away because that's not the right word. Mm. It doesn't become... It doesn't reduce an impact in your life, mm. even if it was 20 or 30 years ago. So what often happens is in the media, so someone will come forward and say, I mm. had this experience, it was 30 years ago. And the number one comment now is, well, if, why didn't you come out then? Yeah. Why didn't you tell people then? And so, you know, naturally our response is, well, it was a different time. Mm. Um, you wouldn't have received the support or even mm. the reception that you're receiving now. So mm. that's understandable. But I think there's also the other thing underneath that is that you speak about it when you're ready. So I think it's really important for any survivor 
to know that the process that is right for them is going to be different from from anybody else there's no one size fits all every trauma is different every response to it is different every need for healing is different every moment to speak out and address it is different um, and again yes it would be wonderful if people in the justice so-called justice system would recognize that and understand that and it you know the media and this whole discourse we have of oh why didn't you speak out earlier well there are so many reasons aren't there that very often people don't feel safe to speak out or don't have the support around them or aren't in the right situation you know whether it be professionally or in terms of relationship or even housing or any of those things there are so so many reasons why we don't speak until much later so i want to talk a little bit about well the the abuser Mm. But also in two ways, really. So it'd be great to be able because obviously there's a whole le- there is a level of controversy about bringing the abuser into the space of the survivor. Yeah. So the you know that's a sacred space. Mm. It's not often that um, survivors have the opportunity to be heard. Mm. So the voice and that it needs to be that. Interestingly, though, um, I found it really really powerful, mm. um, and like you mentioned about it, actually brings it to home that it's not that there are two people involved in every one of these situations mm. and actually that the, re- the accountability and the responsibility has to lie on the abuser. Yeah. So hearing him speak and hearing his explanation and his understanding of it obviously was incredibly shocking mm. because it wasn't something that we expected mm. to hear. So I suppose so my first set of questions would be about what have what types of responses have you received from having him being involved in the play? And mm. um, if you can talk a little bit about that. Mm. And then the other side is that why do you think it's important that he's present in your play? Mm. Um, so in my play, I have a short section where the perpetrator of one of my assaults speaks. And he kind of gives his perspective and he talks about how immediately after the incident he recognised it as being non-consensual, that he did something I didn't want, and that it was very hard for him to come to terms with the fact he had done something like that. So, I think, and, and he also actually says at the end of that testimony that he will never be able to forgive himself for having done that. And I think that's, that's quite important for other perpetrators or potential perpetrators to hear because if people realize that they might carry that around with them for the rest of their lives and not be able to forgive themselves for it I think that might go some way towards dissuading some people from doing something like that it might make them realize that they will be carrying a weight for the rest of their lives not just that a survivor would be I think that's important I again recognize that not all uh, perpetrators would have that response. I think many would do what they do and not give it a second thought. And that's the reason there are, you know, I had three assaults, three different people, only one of them I've chosen to speak to. One of them was a stranger, I wouldn't be able to find him if I wanted to. The third, I know I could find, but I don't believe he'd have that kind of response. I wouldn't want to have a conversation with him. So I completely understand as well that many women or survivors would say, 
Mm. I would never want to have that conversation with someone. There's also another of the women who gives her testimony in, in the play that says, I don't think he would admit that what he did was wrong, that what he did was rape. So for that reason, I would not want to have that conversation and I would not feel able to forgive him. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that I think, and this is, and this is, um, this came to mind because of one of the responses I had from an audience member who was a man who said it was very shocking hearing that voice because he sounded just like me. And I thought that was perfect. Very powerful. Because it made him realise, and hopefully other men as well, that perpetrators are just like them. As I said, they're not the, the freak, the outlier. Yeah. They're not hiding in an alleyway with a bare balaclava. No, they're friends. professionals. They are family members. They are partners, husbands, they're your brothers. friends on your sports team. You go to gym with them. Yeah. You meet up for drinks to watch a football game or a rugby yeah. game. Yeah. yeah. They're just like you, yeah. you know. So that, I think, is really important. And speaking about South of Forgiveness, where, which was at the South Bank Centre, where... A, a rapist and uh, the the woman he raped shared a stage together and told their story. I think so. The original they did a TED talk together, South of Forgiveness, and it was really about forgiveness. And then they were scheduled to be as part of Wow Festival, which is a women's celebration. So I understand there was a there were huge protests about them platforming this man, this rapist, and I really understand that because it's not appropriate I think as a part of a women's festival to give that platform to somebody. What I did think was important was to put the weight of the conversation partly onto the shoulders of the rapist and what I felt they had done when they did do the talk was that they moved the focus away from forgiveness and onto responsibility. Yeah. They spoke a lot more about responsibility, that it was his responsibility, and what was he going to do yeah. about that. So I thought that that was a, a, a correct response to that protest. So although I understood the protest, and I, and I think it was right that they didn't have it as part of WOW, I did think it was right to have them speak at some point outside of the festival. And I think it might have been less controversial if they made it clear that they were talking about the responsibility less than about forgiveness. Because I think the impression that it gives if it's a talk about forgiveness is like one should forgive one's perpetrator. And especially when he's there on stage, that's a very contentious thing to do. And I understand that. And so when, I, as I said, in the beginning of my process, I was inspired by some women who speak out for the Forgiveness Project. And I spoke more about forgiveness in the play because I was interested in forgiveness and I was interested in, is it possible for me to find forgiveness? Because I see forgiveness not as saying to the perpetrator, it's okay what happened, but saying to myself, I release myself from carrying the bitterness and the anger associated with it. The forgiveness to me is actually very little to do with that other person and much more to do with myself. Mm. 
But I also realise that it's very contentious speaking about forgiveness in relation to sexual violence because so many people are not in a position to forgive, would not be able to forgive, should not probably forgive. And, you know, very many people are still in that Mm. abusive situation. So it is very dangerous to talk about forgiveness and sexual violence together. So I eased away from that in the play. And I still, you know, we still talk about it a little bit at the end, but it's more about actually forgiveness of self because I think many women carry blame self-blame and I know that I had and in fact one of the other women survivors says I actually think that the people it's hardest for me to forgive are the women in my family because she I think sees them as having been responsible for a, a man in her family for perpetrating violence against her because they left the children with him etc yeah. so I think there are different types of forgiveness and there are also different reasons for for being interested in forgiveness and there are very many reasons for not being interested in forgiveness and there are also different people that we might be interested in thinking about in that way not just the perpetrator because that can be so loaded and so impractical and unappealing for so many people which I completely understand what we could all do to support people who might be being abused or to create safer situations for people to avoid being abused is to speak openly about sexual violence and assault and boundaries and consent particularly boundaries and consent with smaller children you know from a very early Mm. age make sure that they have agencies with what happens with their bodies if they don't want to eat this food if they don't want to wear that thing if they don't want to have a hug if they don't want to kiss granny goodbye that's okay we have to respect children's physical boundaries from a very early age and drill that into them so that they know if anyone touches them in a way that they don't like they can refuse and come and speak to us you know um within families i think that's very important but again you know i didn't have children yet it's very difficult for me in a way to say those things because i don't have that practical experience but i know that if i bring up a child i'm you know that i think will be a very big thing for me um and in schools we should have more education around it schools are very squeamish because they think that anything about consent and boundaries has to be about sex i think it doesn't when they're primary aged i think we should be talking about sex and reproduction and all those things with younger children Absolutely. than we than we are so i think to have a really open conversation about that would be progressive and healing and avoiding of of um situations that we don't want to happen no, and I think you're absolutely right. It is creating those opportunities for conversation. I mean, the reason it is one of the things that we saw quite, quite flippantly throughout the ho- the Harvey Weinstein, um, mm. you know, with with the media is the fact that the number one question that was asked was, but why didn't the women who had experienced it tell somebody else? Mm. Why didn't they say something? Mm. And you know, and I think there's it's again it's that shifting of blame and responsibility onto other people. Yeah. Um, and actually, we have got to understand and appreciate that do not um you know the do not dnrs that they were signed it's just exactly you can't move from there but yeah. actually the power and control that he exerted over the that mm. whole environment of people working mm. um is really interesting um so in light of some of the movements that have come about and, and some of the changes have you seen a difference in because obviously with your play I'm, you do your question and answers afterwards so mm. i'm just a big question as have you seen a difference in the types of questions that the audience have brought for discussion 
And have you seen some of the responses being differently? Because the one that we attended, which was in the vault, there was a man that made quite a, a strong statement, and I was like, oh, clap for him, because he was brilliant, you know, in what he said. I was like, yeah, it's great. Um, and I wonder how many, if you've seen a difference with who attends as well, mm. your Q&As. Mm. So two big questions. And Yeah, I think my th- what I've noticed most in mm, doing performances and having panels on this play both before and after the Me Too movement came about because I've been doing this show for a couple of years now. Um, are what, my, one of my main the things I've, one of the differences I've noticed the most is actually in my own attitude to doing it. And I think before the Me Too movement, I still had an element of shame about talking publicly about what happened to me. Even though people had willingly turned up, paid their money, come to see, you know, been in the, the in the audience, there was still an element inside me where I felt like, oh, should I really be talking about this stuff? But now that there is this public dialogue, I feel much. Why did you feel that you shouldn't talk about it? Oh, just a re- residual shame, I think, about because of you know about um, speaking openly about sexual violence, um, and there was there was some performances early on when it was still in development where there weren't many people there and it was in a kind of basement and you in a damp dark basement and you think okay there are five people who actually want to hear all this stuff and that's really hard to do it in those situations because it does feel a bit mm. like oh yeah I shouldn't be talking about it no one wants to listen but when there's a full audience and people really are engaged with it it feels completely different and that has that's been helped I think by this conversation so I think perhaps post Me Too, um, or rather during, I think that maybe people are more willing to engage with the conversation. Um, I can only conjecture, but I I wonder if for other people that are in the audience as well, they might feel more open, less either shameful or embarrassed for me, you know, about the the story. in terms of the panels, I've always done panel discussions after the show, and that's been a really important thing to me to uh, to give that space mm. for people to process what they've just seen and some of the themes in the play. Um, but the ones at Vault, it was the first time where people actually had to get up, leave the space, come somewhere else, and decide to stay. Um, because before they've always happened in the space. And I was kind of surprised by the numbers of people that came mm-hmm. for the panels. I was I was concerned that because people had to get up and leave and come into another room, they might not bother, but a lot of people still did. And I wonder if, again, that willingness to engage has been, uh, has been helped by the conversation being more public now. I think from, a, well, from the campaign's perspective, we can see that there's more people are sort of looking for an opportunity to share their experience with Mm, other people. mm -hmm. It's as if this has been an opportunity or permission being given for you to actually now talk about your experiences. Mm. So I think we can see that we're getting sort of the the types of responses we're getting or many people are are feeling ready and able to share their story, Mm. which just before perhaps the Me Too, we had one or two people coming forward, Mm. but we saw a real surge, which is incredibly powerful. But what Mm. it shows us is that the more we talk about it, the more free and you know we then go forward and share our stories, which has yeah. been really, really incredible. Really. Yeah. Um, should we talk about your future projects? 
Sure, yeah. Um, okay. This evening, actually, I'm about to go off and do a performance of a new piece which I've just made, which is only 15 minutes long, but is along the same lines as Foreign Body, in that it's, um, it's a sound piece with movement. So I'm not speaking, but the, there is story. And the sound is interviews with me talking about my experiences of healing after sexual violence and also the impact it had on me. So it's look, the, the theme, the brief that I was given was what happens after. So it's partly my healing and, and the impact it had on me. And what I've done is I have interwoven my voice with the voices of journalists talking about instances of sexual violence in the media because the reason I did that was because when I'm thinking about what happens after and my healing and uh, the impact it's had I feel like there's me and then there's this barrage of constant information about more rape cases more sexual violence cases more in the media more you know the president who's a, a known abuser etc um, we're being made it's, it's, it's kind of impossible to exist in a vacuum as a survivor there's this constant almost an, another assault of always having these stories coming and coming and coming and coming and partly I was interested in the way that the journalists refer to these stories for example being very pitying of the perpetrators who've been found guilty and are being sent to jail and not talking at all about the impact it would have on the survivor so it's it's kind of a comment on on that really. So I'm excited. And it's interesting how different perpetrators gain different sympathy to other perpetrators as well. Yeah. Um, and it's seeing how the, that response can be different across different media sources. Yeah. Um, and knowing that, dif- yeah, that the underlying message and, and it, there's just so much messaging which mm-hmm. isn't positive around it. Mm-hmm. In addition, to, and we have to. I know from a campaign point of view, we're trying to push through all of that messaging to say there is support available you can access it and without sounding like L'Oreal but you are worth it yes. and you're worth yeah. the time that of contacting that specialist support service and, yeah. and being connected yeah. whereas what you often see in the media is like you were mentioning earlier it's the story of the incident mm. a little bit on the court case but often more about the impact on that on the perpetrator's life mm. and then nothing more exactly um, exactly and it doesn't paint the full you know the full story of the experience not at all and Yes, I think it's very important because yeah, the, the journalists very often hang on the the, the um, assault itself, the incident itself, what happened, you know, because it's you know they sensationalise it and all of that. And what we need to do definitely is spend more time looking at the long term impact and how it how recovery can take place. Um, and I hope that one of the things that this piece can do is show so my story continues going throughout that whole 15 minutes and there are interjections of these voices in the media which tell about what happened what happened what happened what happened but and my story goes on and on and on and on so it's kind of looking that looking at that I suppose one person's journey that continues through all of those different media uh, moments if we've looked at what could have happened with regards to your group of friends back then and you've looked at now you've had this great opportunity mm-hmm. to work with um, you never uh, with him. Should we call him him? Yeah, with him. Um, so, and I suppose in a way that has been a unique opportunity because, like you mentioned, that you've that it's quite 
rare that mm. anybody would actually ask or be able to ask mm. the abusive person why they did it, mm. what were they thinking when they did it. Um, so I suppose the question is that that's been an opportunity for you to see that whole perspective. Mm. If I could give you a magic wand, mm. what would you like to see going forward mm. as a way of change? So you've got the magic wand. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. One is, and it, it, this refers back to the Me Too movement really and the responses that we've seen from a lot of people where they, men and women actually, where they say, oh, it's just a hand on the knee. Oh, you're making a fuss about nothing. I would like to be able to change that attitude um, to an attitude of believing. Not only believing the incident, but believing the feeling that was felt by the abused in that instance. Because what might look just like a hand on a knee to one person might feel like something much more severe to the person it's being done to. And I think we read human intent much better than some people would like to believe. So if a man is putting his hand on my knee and I feel uncomfortable, I have a reason for feeling uncomfortable. If a man puts his hand on my knee and there's no malicious intent, then it might feel different to me. So we ha I think that magic wand for me would be about getting people to believe the survivor of whatever kind of assault or abuse or harassment it is, that this has happened and that it's not okay. Absolutely, yeah. Because once people start to believe it, we begin to be able to do something about it. The other thing I would really like to be able to do, and it, this kind of sounds really unpleasant because I think very often people who are not survivors, again, of whatever gender, but people who are not survivors don't understand the impact of sexual trauma. And I think it's very, very hard to communicate that feeling of violation and of trauma and the layers and layers of impact that it can have. So I would like for the skeptics, for the non-believers to actually understand, to be able to fully empathize with what it feels to have survived something like that. Because I think if they were able to understand how it really felt, we would have a different legal system. Absolutely. We would have much more, we, people would be taken much more seriously. And they would also begin to understand that people just don't make this stuff up. It costs too much to go through you know, the legal system if one takes it that far, or even just to speak openly about it. We don't just do it to get a bit of attention. I wish people could understand that. For more information on the issues discussed in this podcast, visit UKSaysNoMore.org. You can also download Bright Sky for free from your app store for support and information on domestic abuse, sexual consent, stalking and harassment.